Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. I was surprised to learn this week that Johnny Cash's iconic song, A Boy Named Sue, wasn't written by the man in black, but by someone really unexpected, Shel Silverstein, the celebrated children's author, as is true, of The Giving Tree and Giraffe and a Half. He wrote A Boy Named Sue. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul praises God for his eternal plan of salvation But this passage is not a dry doctrinal dissertation. The apostle wrote a song. It's true. It's a hymn broken up into three stanzas. Maybe you've already heard that in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 are one long, unbroken sentence of 202 words. Some scholars actually criticize Paul for it. You have to love academics One calls it a clumsy and monstrous sentence. Wow, okay. Another says, verses 3 through 14 are lengthy, cumbersome phrases weighed down with chains of synonyms and nouns qualified by overloaded adjectives. I mean, that's a pretty long uh, sentence by itself, but that's fine. Everyone's a critic. Complaints like these miss the point uh, and are downright disrespectful. (laughs) Paul is giving us a song. It's fitting. Uh, Because he's going to talk about worship. He's going to later expressly command Christians in this book to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And he uh, practices what he preaches. Paul's song, in essence, at its very core, says, can you believe what God has done? Praising God uh, for what he has done for us. It's a song about the wonders of salvation and the significance of salvation. It's dense. It's more American Pie than Justin Bieber's baby, right? It's got, it's got a lot going on. Remember when you first heard the whole version of American Pie and it was like 90 minutes long and you had to take a nap in the middle to finish it? Anyway, it's a dense song. It begins by highlighting five elements of God's salvation, which then we discover as he goes deeper into the, the text that those five elements are sort of an umbrella category each one of them, under which we, re- we then receive thousands of blessings from God as his people. It's important that we recognize that this passage is not primarily doctrinal. Now, of course, all of Scripture is given for teaching, and doctrine just means teaching in that sense, right? So all of Scripture is doctrinal, but the, the primary original purpose of these verses was not for him to sit people down in a classroom and give them a doctrinal dissertation. It is an act of passionate praise to God. Now, when we bring his song into English and then into the doctrinal battlefield, which is necessary, it's easy for us as students and as readers to lose sight of the original primary purpose of this song. Thomas Newfield writes this, a price is paid for this ease of reading, meaning bringing it into English and giving it all the punctuation, the separate sentences. 
we lose the experience of reading or hearing the passage as one long, unbroken, deliberately exhausting recitation of how God has blessed us. And so Paul's song celebrates God's blessings, and it reminds us of the consequences and responsibilities that we now have as a result of being people who have received God's salvation. Because salvation we find in this song and in the rest of the New Testament is not just about missing the penalty of our sins, right? A lot of times we think of it in that sense, in that rescue sense, that I I was perched over, you know, hell's fire and I was rescued from having to, to pay for the penalty of my sin. That is obviously one of the key aspects of salvation, but Paul's going to explain that salvation isn't just being rescued from something bad. It is a comprehensive package that completely transforms you for God's purposes and in God's power so that you are filled full of the fullness of God. And so we not only are saved from something, salvation brings with it all sorts of blessings that Paul's going to talk about, thousands upon thousands of them. And It also brings about consequences in the best way for our daily living and responsibilities that we now enjoy because we are saved. This song reminds us of the greatness of God. And the song reminds us that this life with Christ, this walk with Christ that we're in, most of us, I would imagine, is only going to get better. We realize by the end of the song that we are living now just in the down payment stage of salvation. The best is yet to come. But as I alluded to earlier, this section of scripture is a doctrinal battleground, a fierce one. As I read our verses, maybe a few of you had that feeling sort of creep up behind you, that feeling when April 15th is coming around, right? That feeling that a bill is coming due. I've got great news for you. Tax day isn't April 15th. It's not even April 18th. Did you know for Californians, due to storms and mudslides and other natural disasters, the IRS has given residents of Alabama, California, and Georgia until October 16th to file. So just, you know, I'm sure everybody's filed already, but, you know, you have a bunch of extra months to not file, I guess. We're talking about doctrine here. As we read those verses, maybe for some of you who have been exposed to uh, what is known as Calvinistic theology or doctrine, maybe it felt like Calvinism came knocking with its doctrine of unconditional election. Robert Dale, great commentator, writes, on the first few verses of this epistle, the Calvinistic theory of election and predestination has been supposed to rest as on foundations of eternal granite. Now, is that true? What are we to make of these verses in light of this doctrinal debate? This isn't the only passage where election is a debated topic, but it is one of the major ones, one of the most significant ones. Calvinist doctrine interprets verses 4 and 5 as saying that God, in eternity past, unconditionally elected for some human beings, picked some human beings to be saved and for the rest to be damned and that it was done. The choice was settled by God in eternity past. Now, before I continue, let me just say foundationally this, and I really mean it. We love our reformed brothers and sisters 
Uh, I'm not saying that they're not Christians. I recognize that probably in the room there's someone who is maybe uh, more of an adherent of of Calvinistic theology or maybe leans that way or some way or another, or certainly a number of us have read and been inspired by uh, the writings of individuals who are very Calvinistic in their uh, doctrine and in their teaching. And so uh, this is not meant to be a a fist fight with anybody or uh, meant to be derogatory towards, uh, towards other believers. I'm not saying anything like that. But I will say that this is a doctrinal hill on which we are willing to contend because it deals so much with the character and nature of God. Because what you decide about this issue is going to radically change what you think about who God is and how he works and therefore what the purpose of the Christian life is. It's foundational. It's, 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 it changes your theology on a profound level depending on what side of this issue are on. Now, it's a non-essential issue. You can believe in what Calvinists call the tulip and be a Christian, and you can not believe in the tulip and be a Christian, but this is one of those hills uh, that we are willing to say, hey, we're going to try to hold this ground and, and explain what our position is uh, because it's so important to us that God's character and nature be presented in a way that we believe is consistent with the word of God. Just as we pause for just a second, what was the reason that Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land? If we pause to think about that, that is such a big deal that Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. And what was the reason? Was it because he was a murderer? No. Was it because he refused to circumcise his son when God called him to be the deliverer? No. Uh, Was it because this, it was because he misrepresented God to the people of God when God said, first strike the rock, and then the second time he said, now speak to the rock. But Moses was angry, and he struck the rock and said, well, Moses disobeyed God. Moses disobeyed God plenty of times, just like we disobey God plenty of times. What Moses did was misrepresent God to the people of God, and the Lord said, hey, I'm so serious about you representing my character and my nature in a proper way that you're going to be disciplined in a dramatic and breathtaking way. You're not going in. Aaron's not going in. You've been hanging around for 120 years and you're done. Wow. And so we're really serious about about the character and nature of God because God is a God of grace and God of love and we don't believe that you have to redefine those terms in certain places in order to convince yourselves about things about God. So let's get a little bit into this, okay? So uh, there's, well, Uh, One Calvinistic scholar writes this. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1 specifies the action of God in eternity whereby he has fixed in advance the destiny of certain people. That Paul is describing God's selection of certain people to the exclusion of certain others. But is that what Paul is saying when he says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world? There's an incredibly important phrase in Paul's song, and it's one that he uses often in his writings, well more than 100 times, 27 times in this epistle, 10 times in the song itself, and we're going to see it here in our verses even, and that phrase is, in Christ. 
If you look at verse 4 again, it says, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And so let's pause to consider what is actually being said contextually and the implications of our interpretation versus the implications of what is known as the Calvinistic interpretation. At this point of Ephesians, many Calvinists would say, or Calvinist doctrine would say, Ephesians says God chose who would be saved from eternity past. We can't understand how that squares with him being a God of love and mercy and grace, but his ways are higher than our ways, so we just let it go. Don't even question it. Don't worry about it. That's the point at which they say, hey, it's a mystery. We can't understand it in our finite minds, and so we we let that go, and we just accept it. Don't question it. We would say, no, we are absolutely allowed to question that interpretation because if that is true, then God's character is much different than if it isn't true, right? We're talking about two very different personalities, characters, and natures depending on which of these interpretations is on the money. The entire context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is group, is community, is the universalness of the church, the ongoing work of God through his body that he is building, that he's combining Gentiles and Jews into one unit. Klein Snodgrass writes, usually when people speak of divine election, they think of the election of individuals and the benefit to them, speaking of personal salvation. He continues, but biblical texts have a different emphasis, for election is primarily a corporate term. Nothing in Ephesians 1 focuses on individuals, rather the text focuses collectively on those who are in Christ. This changes the theology. So in Scripture, God repeatedly uses an individual to be the federal representative for a future group. It happens quite a few times in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. Adam was the first representative. He represented mankind. And you know from your studies of the Scripture that through Adam, you inherit what? Sin. Did you sin in the Garden of Eden? Yes and no. No, you didn't personally sin in the Garden of Eden because you're not that old. You sinned in Adam. He was your representative. And you are included in the fall and the inheritance of the fall because you were represented by him. Later on, as we looked through Genesis, what did we see? We saw Abraham became a new representative. God came to Abraham and he said, I would like to have a covenant with you. And not just with you individually or the people immediately in your tent, in your household right now, but with all these people that are going to come through you, you're going to be the representative of a special chosen people who will later become the nation of Israel. And those, that people received promises and plans and power from God through their relationship to Abraham. He was their representative. Christ then becomes the most important representative of all. He is the lamb. He is the head. He is the chosen servant spoken of in Isaiah. And now anyone who is in Christ is able to receive the blessings of salvation offered by God. From eternity past, God has directed that we be adopted as sons, Paul said. Well, who is the we in Paul's statement? The answer is all who are in Christ, all who are in him. He goes out of his way almost in a redundant way to say in him, in Christ, in the beloved one, in Christ, in him, 10 times 
in 12 verses. And so we would distill our position on the dense phrases of Paul's song into this statement given by a commentator named Frank Thielman. He says, God has determined in advance that those who are in Christ would be his people. Or, if you'd like, here's a different way. Once in Christ, we are caught in the currents of the eternal purposes of the divine love. So that's sort of a distillation. What was God choosing and predestining? Or you'll hear it, see in old books, predestinating. But I just can't bring myself to really use that term very often. Was God choosing individuals to put them into Christ? That would be the Reformed Calvinistic Uh, expression of this idea? Or is God choosing and predestining that those in Christ would have all of these benefits and have all of these things, and we would land in that second camp? Now, if that doesn't sort of shake the specter of this other doctrine off of your shoulder, here are a few implications and questions we can pose and discuss in order to hopefully bring more clarity to Ephesians chapter 1. Because the words are challenging. You read that and you're like, what does that mean? Do I have a choice? Am I a free moral agent? Is everything that is happening to me, around me, and through me just something that God already put into motion from the eternity past? Am I just an automaton that is going through the motions that God forces me to do? Now, these are serious questions. So here are a couple of of issues we want to deal with. Calvinistic doctrine in interpreting Ephesians 1 1 verse 4 would suggest that chosen people were in Christ from before the foundations of the world. But this contradicts several very plain statements in Scripture. For example, Paul said in Romans 16, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, they were in Christ before me. Okay, how can that be true if choosing in Christ happened from eternity past, before either of them existed, before there was time, space, or matter? How could they be put into Christ before Paul was? It, it, it doesn't logically flow. It's, it, it can't follow. Number two, Paul will later say in Ephesians 2 that he and the Ephesians were children under wrath as others were also, showing, hey, Everybody was under wrath. We, you and me, we were children under wrath, just like these others who are not Christians also, right? And that the Ephesians, before they were believers, were without Christ, he says. So how can that be if they were sealed by the grace of God before they were born? If they were in Christ from before the foundations of the earth, how can Paul say that they were without Christ later in this epistle? Number three, Paul wrote in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Most of you are familiar with that verse, right? But what did Jesus say? He said, anyone who does not believe is condemned. And so the problem is, if Calvinistic doctrine is to be believed, a person who is chosen from eternity past but not yet a believer, think of Paul in the beginning of the book of Acts. He was not a believer, right? He was persecuting the church. He was, he was doing all of these terrible things. He did not believe in Jesus. So we would say, okay, if the, the Calvinistic position says, well, he was chosen in Christ from eternity past, but at this point, at the beginning of the book of Acts, he is not a believer. Well, based on what we're reading then, he is simultaneously condemned and not condemned at the same time. And so it's just unsustainable to carry that through as a line of logic. 
So what did God predestine? What did he choose? He determined beforehand that anyone who was in Christ would not only be saved from death and judgment, but that they would be adopted as sons into the family of God and that they would be holy and blameless to the praise of his glory. We see election exampled through Israel, the chosen nation. Not just Israel, but it's a great example. Calvinistic doctrine presents election as bypassing and excluding outsiders. That comes from a paper from a a Calvinist theologian who's talking about election in this passage of Scripture. He says, listen, Israel as a chosen nation, divine election is, is bypassing and excluding outsiders so that God can pick insiders. Okay. What happened, though, in Israel? Israel was the chosen nation. Were outsiders ever excluded if they wanted to be included? The answer is no. Think about Rahab. What happened when Rahab wanted to join the people of Israel? Was she excluded? What about Ruth, the Moabitess? Was she excluded? What about the mixed multitude of Exodus 12? Were they excluded? What about the people of Gibeon? They tricked Joshua and lied, but they said, hey, we just, we want to live and not die. Were they excluded? No. Were any of them bypassed or excluded because they weren't original members of the chosen seed of Abraham? The answer is no. They were all brought in. They were all accepted when they came by faith. There was always a place for those who would say, I'm here to join in with what God is doing. Even Naaman the Aramean was approved by God. He didn't join Israel. He didn't move to Israel. He didn't get circumcised. He went back home and he said, but hey, I obviously believe in the Lord and and please grant me this mercy. And man, the man of God said, yeah, go in peace. You're good to go. He was approved by God, accepted by God. Back to Rahab. Think of her story. She said, what, to the, to the representatives of Israel? She said, please give me mercy. We know that God is with you. We know that we're going to be judged. Please give me mercy. And the men of Israel, the spies of Israel, did not say, okay, well, we can't do it because you're not chosen in Abraham. They said, we'll save you. But they didn't say, okay, and now we're going to choose the following specific members of their, your family. Here's the list. That's who's saved. What did they say? They said, anyone who's in your house when judgment comes is going to be saved. Anyone. He said, fathers, brothers, sisters, like get them in your house and they will be saved. And and effectively he said, but if you don't do that, we're clean of our offer to you. So the choice is yours and theirs. Who wants to be in the house? Who wants to receive the free gift of salvation that they did not deserve, they did not merit? It wasn't owed them or anything like that. And he said, come in this house and you're going to be saved. God chose that all who are in Christ will be saved and adopted. So then the the important question is, okay, well, how can I be in Christ? By faith. Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is. By faith, you receive the redemption of the blood of Christ. By faith, you are saved. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, I just, I just say that faith prayer and then that's it. That's all that, that is ever required of me or that's all that I ever need to do. The New Testament explains that and Paul is explaining literally in this passage 
that from that initial saving belief, your understanding and your knowledge and your obedience and your wisdom and your love for God is going to grow day by day as you walk with him. You're going to mature in your faith. So then Jesus says in John 14, he says, you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I also will love him and reveal myself to him. And so we love God, we believe by faith, he reveals himself and then we learn more about God, obey him more, have greater revelation about who he is and what he's done as we delve deeper into our relationship with him. In John 17, Jesus said that those who believe in him through the word of his disciples are one in the Father and the Son. Now, that doesn't mean that a person has to know a bunch of things and do all kinds of things before they're placed in Christ. You have to have a master's degree in theology and then you're placed in Christ. That is not the teaching at all. Simple thief on the cross faith is sufficient to be placed in Christ. And then from there, we are transformed in heart and mind and planned and purpose and future by the power of God's salvation because God has predestined all who are in Christ to grow in that way, to become adopted, to mature, to become blameless and sanctified and all of these things that Paul is detailing in this song. And so Paul is saying that God determined to save the lost from before the foundation of the earth. It wasn't a strategy session. This, I sometimes make the mistake of thinking of that. Like God was you know, in eternity past and kind of seen through history. He's like, uh-oh, the humans are going to do this. Let's make a plan. That's not really what's happening. Because God is outside of time and space. And so you can't say, well, there was a, a time outside of time and space where God made this decision. No, this saving plan, this, this redemption, this reconciliation, this salvation stuff emanates from who God is. It is his nature. It is his character to save and to reconcile. And to be clear, because this is a criticism that is often leveled at folks who have our position on this issue, they say, well, you're saying that faith saves you, that you effectively save yourself. That's not what we're saying at all. And so let me be clear, we don't believe that faith saves a person. What saves a person? The grace of God saves a person. You are saved by grace through faith, right? It is God's grace. It is his work of redemption. It is Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and rising again, which accomplishes salvation. That's what saves now, through faith, we lay hold of the salvation that God has accomplished and now freely offered to us. It's his work, not ours. Our faith doesn't save us. It's simply the mechanism by which we receive God's free gift of salvation. Now, beyond the controversy, we can see this amazing, gracious, saving election gives us not only many blessings... But Paul, right here in these opening lines of the song, he says this gives us a great responsibility. It is a calling to be a Christian. It's not just rescue from flames. It is a calling into a walk in a relationship with God. Paul says that God chose us, those in Christ, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. And so in these verses, there are four aspects to our calling now that we're in Christ. Not the only ones, but they're the four in the text. 
We are holy. We are blameless. We are adopted children to the praise of God's glory. Now, we talked about holiness last time because Paul already identified them as holy saints, right? It means that we're called in the Christian life to be separated and dedicated to spiritual purposes in our lives and continually cleaned by the power of God. Blameless means without blemish. And it's an interesting word he, Paul uses. He uses a word that the Septuagint uses to refer to a sacrificial animal, which gives us kind of more insight into the connection to Paul's other letter, Romans. Romans 12, what does he say? He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the Christian life. God has predestined you, Christian, to be blameless. You don't make yourself blameless. This is the work that God is accomplishing. He is the one that accomplishes our cleansing and our sanctification. He began the work. He will complete it. He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. But as the Bible reveals, we have a freed will and we are able to cooperate or resist the work that God is doing in our lives. The New Testament speaks to, to, to Christians and says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't resist the work that God wants to do in you. You don't have to holy yourself. You don't have to blameless yourself. You can't do it. You still live in a fallen uh, world with a sinful nature that is at war with your new nature in Christ. But it is God that is accomplishing his work in you, but you and I have to cooperate with him and allow him to do what he is desiring to do in and through us. And so Paul says in Romans 12, as I say, he says, I urge you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so on a spiritual level, as Christians, we have the choice whether we're going to be like Isaac was in Genesis 22, who willingly submitted to the sacrificial calling from his father. As we cooperate in this work of unblemishing, God is able to continually transform us and renew our minds, and we are able then to discern the will of God more and more in our lives. Next, our calling is to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. And what a key facet this is. God's desire is that we have the kind of relationship with him that Jesus has with him. The way that God and Jesus relate, when we see Jesus in the Gospels, he says, I want you to have a relationship with me like that. That closeness, that affection, a tender personal relationship together. God, we see it in this song. God blesses us, we bless him. God loved us first, we love him back. God pours out his grace on us, we pour out our lives to him. This back and forth reciprocal love and blessing and tenderness and affection. God says, I want, I want my relationship to, with you to be like a father and a son and like my relationship with Christ when he was on the earth. I want that to be like what we have, that communion, that nearness, that affection. Next, our calling is to be part of the praise of God's glorious grace. One of the great purposes of your life and my life is to bring praise to the glory of God. And Paul is demonstrating that the more we know about God, the more we realize what he's done, the more worship and thankfulness will explode from our hearts. It's like combining vinegar and baking soda. Only one thing's going to happen. It's a reaction. It's just the nature of things. You put those things together and there's an overflow. 
Robert Dale writes, God should be great to the imagination, filling it with splendor, great to the intellect, commanding its most reverent homage and raising it to its loftiest activity, great to the heart, inspiring it with passionate affection, with perfect trust, with deep gratitude, with glorious hope, and with the awe which will restrain from sin. The greatness of the understanding of who God is and allowing that understanding to overflow in praise in and through our hearts and lives. If we understand salvation, the result is going to be praise, right? It's, it's, the, it's the byproduct of, of the understanding. Back in 2007, the iPhone was announced. Steve Ballmer, then CEO of Microsoft, said there was, quote, no chance it would get any market share. <laughs> right? And that's, that's what they should put on every one of those websites that still has this. But what, what was the problem? He didn't understand what the iPhone was, did he? He didn't understand that this device was going to change the entire world. It did. Had he understood what the iPhone really was, not only would he have changed what he said, he would have changed the choices that he and his company would make as a result, right? It was one of the worst misunderstandings of a product of all time. So the, the deal is, if we understand what salvation, Paul is like, I want you to understand what salvation is, because if we understand what salvation is and the implications of salvation for our lives, wow, it's going to change you and it's going to change your church and change the way you worship and the way you speak and the way you think. It's going to change communities. It's life-changing. It's not just death escaping, it's life-changing. And Paul's going to explain to the Ephesians that as we live out our Christianity, as we live out this calling and responsibility, we discover God's desires for our lives. He prepared beforehand works for each of us to walk in, and we're able to discern those things and accomplish them in God's power and by the grace that he has given to each one of us. Paul's song encourages us to celebrate our God and his salvation Through God's grace, we experience thousands upon thousands of blessings in all of these different arenas of our life. And even though we live in a fallen world, even though we're still waiting for that day when we are fully, finally, actually, totally presented spotless before the Lord without sin or the desire to sin, the promises of God are already true right here, right now. R. Kent Hughes writes, temporarily we live here on earth, but spiritually we live in the heavenly realms where Christ lives. Paul calls us to immerse ourselves in this truth and to celebrate. Now we need to think rightly about what the blessings of God really are. The New Testament does not teach health and wealth for every believer. What does verse three say? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't ever give material blessings. He does. It doesn't mean God never heals physically. He does. But his blessings flow from his grace, his love, his will for your life and for the church. And some of those blessings are not things that we would select from the blessing vending machine. They just aren't. Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted. 1 Peter 4, blessed are those who are ridiculed for the name of Christ. Revelation 2, martyrdom carries a special blessing from God. And so we need to understand not only, well, God blesses me. Okay, well, what what does he bless us with? Well, he blesses us with all spiritual blessings in the heavens. 
And as we look into the scriptures, we understand more and more of what that is. And Paul, in the very next section, is going to explain specifically some of the ways that God blesses his people. Christian life is not a celebration of always being comfortable or profitable or successful in the worldly sense. It is a celebration of the fact that the living God is doing an eternal work with us. In verse 6, Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Literally translated, it's this, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has begraced us with. What a great term. You, as a Christian, have been begraced by the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You're begraced. Any of you, like ladies, do bedazzling ever back in the day? You've been begraced by the God of all grace. And so as we close this part of Paul's beautiful song, we can consider, I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life, and so I can't tell you what sort of specific application you may need to make, but here are a couple of questions that we can each ask ourselves based on how Paul has described the treasure trove of salvation and the consequences of laying hold of this treasure. Okay, so based off of what he said, here are some questions we all can ask and allow the actual Holy Spirit to speak to us about how he might want to, to apply this word in our lives. First, how do I think of God? Is he the God of personal, passionate, generous grace and kindness that Paul is presenting here? Is he a father in my life? Is he great in my mind? Is he king in my heart? Second, am I a person who brings praise to God's glory? Is there a flow of worship and thankfulness and excitement about who God is and what he's done? Third, is my life producing the predestined fruit of holiness, blamelessness, and adoption that God intends to bring out of not only my walk with him, but every Christian's walk with him? And fourth, am I remaining in Christ? What did Jesus say in John 15? He had these words for us. He's like, remain in me. Abide in me so that we can bear fruit, so that the, the Trinity can bear fruit through your life and, and God can be glorified and so that we can progress in our discipleship. It's been God's plan all along. We want to take up the treasures that he's offered us and the responsibilities of so great a salvation and be transformed by the power of God as he leads us on.